Christ's name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians so far, Paul has been writing to the church at Corinth in order to encourage the church, instruct the church. Um, dare, dare I say, speak against the church because the church is not unified, but to encourage the church toward unity, to admonish the church body toward unity. And right now he is talking particularly about spiritual gifts and the practice of spiritual gifts within the church. He has affirmed all the spiritual gifts, including tongues and prophecy. He has defined those uh, tongues, meaning tongues of men and of angels, and prophecy, meaning the exposition of the word of God, whether it be preaching, teaching, or teaching in a classroom setting, or counseling or singing. Uh, these, this is how Paul defines prophecy in 1 Corinthians leading up to this point. And he has told us, his audience, that if we are going to desire spiritual gifts, we should desire what edifies the local church, desire what we can use to edify others. So instead of desiring tongues, he says it's better to desire Prophecy and to practice that in love, which is a way that is far superior than the mere pursuit of spiritual gifts. Prophecy edifies, prophecy is intelligent, prophecy challenges. By prophecy, Paul is admonishing the church. It is prophecy by which we grow in our understanding of who God is and what God has done, come to know. Not merely more about him, but come to know him more through his scriptures. In verses 20 through 33, Paul is still talking about prophecy and tongues. This time giving specific instruction for the use of tongues and specific instruction for the use of prophecy. Let's read verses 20 through 33 together here in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Brethren, Do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, 
It should be by two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The big idea here is the same as it has been the last few weeks. Uh, What we do, especially in the context of the gathering, in in the context of the the gathering together of the saints, of believers, we do to edify others. We do to edify the local church, to edify the body of Christ. This applies outside the proverbial church walls, right? Everything we do in life, we do for the edification of others, for our families, for those who labor alongside us in the workplace, for those who serve us as government officials. We do what we do to, to edify others in every arena of life. And I, I think, especially considering that Christ is renewing the world, that his kingdom has been established and he, he continues to, to encompass the whole earth with his, with his kingdom and the optimistic view of our faith, I think we can do that, speak to the edification of the world rather than trashing the world with our tongues. Instead of being a people so interested in condemnation and a people interested in tearing everything down that we see or just awaiting out the apocalypse, the the impending apocalypse, we can be joyful as we relate to the world and as we pour into the world and we can be optimistic about the direction of the world even though there are things that we do not like. And we say this over and again, I think, from this pulpit. We'll start in verse 20 and we'll walk through verse by verse like we normally do. Paul, continuing his argument, continuing his exhortation, his admonition about spiritual gifts, particularly the juxtaposition between tongues and prophecy. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Paul is referring back to a previous illustration he used. This is an illustration he used in chapter 13 when he was talking about the definition of love. And he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But as I grew into an adult, Childish things passed away. I forsook childish things. And he was using that as an illustration to talk about our knowledge of God and about God and of biblical things and spiritual things and all that we experience in Christ. And now in this life, he basically said, we are all infants and we see in a mirror dimly but thin in the resurrection when we are glorified, when we receive our glorified bodies and our glorified minds and our glorified eyes, then we will see clearly. Then our knowledge will be perfected. Our relational knowledge of God will be perfected. And now he's challenging the church. Do not be children 
in your thinking. I find this interesting, and Paul does this often, right? All these people are still on this side of the resurrection. And Paul has said, we're all like children this side of the resurrection, but don't be like children in your thinking. But we're still on this side of the resurrection, Paul. And Paul, Paul plays with this language a lot like this, especially through 1 Corinthians. We're going to see it next week when, when Paul tells women to keep silent in the churches. Like he's already said that women can prophesy in the gathering. and He's given instruction and rules for that, right? Then all of a sudden he's like, women keep silent, but you have to wait till next week to see what's going on with Paul. This week he's using this language of children again, referring back to his illustration. Don't be like children in your thinking. Get an evil, be infants. Like, like it is evil to be childish in our thinking. He said, instead of this, in your thinking, be Mature, And here I think he's referring to this, the process of sanctification. He's cluing us into the process of sanctification. Like there is no way we can grow into perfect mature adults this side of the resurrection, I don't think. See clearly in this mirror that Paul used in his illustration in chapter 13. There's no way we can do that. We all see through a glass darkly. But it is something we are to be striving for this side of the resurrection. And the more childish we are in our thinking, the more evil we are in our actions and of our hearts and of, and of our minds and of everything we do. Why? Because if we are thinking like children, everything is about us and what we gain and how we can exalt ourselves and get the things we want out of life. Well, that's why so many adults experience what we call a midlife crisis, right? Because they look back at everything they've done and they look at where they are now and they're like, I thought I would have so much more right now. I thought I would be more exalted than I am. I thought I would have more money. I thought I would have a better job by now. But people turn... 40 years old in, in their 40s and their life is still all about them. That is the childish way of thinking. And that is why we have so many crises in life because when we should be growing up, we don't. We remain childish in our thinking in the way that we think. But in your thinking, be mature. Paul, again, bringing 1 Corinthians 13 into this and the definition of love and edification. Like as we mature in Christ spiritually and mentally, we become less concerned about what exalts us, what we can gain selfishly about promoting ourselves, especially spiritually, especially religiously. And we begin to care more about edifying others. This is all about edifying others. And so to be mature in our thinking is to approach everything at home, with family, at our workplaces, when we're doing school stuff, to approach everything as if I am here to edify others. And this is especially true in the gathering of believers, in the gathering of the saints, when we do church. If we are mature Christians, the mark of mature Christianity, at least as mature as we can get this side of the resurrection, the mark of mature Christianity is 
our thoughts become more about edifying others. So rather than, rather than thinking in this way, what can I abstain from to appear more holy? That's a childish way of thinking there. What can I do to gain more political power within the church? That is a childish way of thinking, according to this text, that is evil. What can I do to advance my own agenda and my own morality in the world today? That is a childish way of thinking. That is evil. But what can I do to build others up? That is a mature way of thinking and something that doesn't come natural to us because, well, we all start out spiritual babes and we are as immature as physical babes. Verse 21. In the law it is written, this is Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, the I there being God, Yahweh. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, in context of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, the prophet is speaking against the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel is obstinate. They're like obstinate children. They are childish in their thinking and and in their unrighteousness, they are suppressing the word of God. They are suppressing the truth such that they justify their own actions, which happened often in Israel's history. So in that context, God is saying, I'm going to bring in a foreign people. I'm going to bring in the nations. I am going to bring in the Gentiles who don't speak your language. They speak a different language. They are a strange people to you. They have strange heathen practices. And even though they don't know me, I am going to use them to make my word clearer to you. And still, Israel, you are not going to listen. A Paul launching from this passage in the Old Testament, uh, uh, making application from this passage in the Old Testament, from this Old Testament story. He says, So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Which I find to be very interesting. Here Paul calls them a sign, but it's, but it's not like we think of signs, Right? When we think of signs, especially when we think of the spiritual gifts as signs, we would say something like this. When you receive the Holy Spirit, in order to signify that you have received the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues, meaning the tongues of angels, tongues that are indiscernible to the human, human ear, human mind. But here Paul is saying it's actually quite different. If that's what you are prioritizing, not to delegitimize or illegitimize the gift, right? The proper use of the gift of tongues. But if that's what you prioritize, the mystical, what is not understandable, if that's what you prioritize, that's actually a sign that you are unbelievers, not a sign that you are believers. And And we see evidence of that in this Old Testament story, right? When God used tongues in the Old Testament, it was to shame Israel for their unbelief. And so we should expect God not to change the way that he uses things. And we should expect 
that any movement that prioritizes the mystical gifts like tongues as evidence of salvation because it is indiscernible is actually suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and their prioritization of gifts like tongues, the indiscernible, the, 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 the ununderstandable. We should expect that those churches are full of unbelievers and full of unregenerate people. But prophecy, but prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. I find this to be very interesting too. It wasn't long ago I was guest preaching at a at a church and. I basically walked through parts of Romans, uh, expository presentation of the gospel. That's what I did. And afterwards, uh, someone approached me, a young guy. I couldn't have been out of high school yet. He approached me and said, everything you said was right. But I have a problem with one thing. That's the kind of message that needs to be preached outside the church and not inside the church. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but those who believe. And how has Paul defined prophecy here in 1 Corinthians? <laughs> An exposition of the text of Scripture. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And he says, we, We've applied these things figuratively to ourselves so that you might learn, church at Corinth, and as a result, every other church, right? Because we all read this letter. This is our, this is our text of Scripture. So that you may learn not to exceed what is written. So even for the prophets, it is wrong to exceed what is written. Whatever we prophesy is to be an exposition of the text of Scripture, an expository presentation of Scripture itself, line by line, word by word, going through it together so that we receive the word of God, not the words made up by people. Prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And since he is also challenging us not to be children in our thinking, but to, but to let our thinking be more mature, that means this is exposition that actually challenges us. Exposition that is profitable Exposition that challenges the way we believe. Exposition that challenges our views on morality. Exposition that challenges our view about theology and ecclesiology. Exposition that challenges our personal philosophies and the things that we learn from the world. Exposition that challenges us in our childishness. And here's what it means. Exposition, prophecy, is, a, is for a sign to believers. If we want to put it exactly the way this verse does. That means that the mark of a genuine and sincere local church is the exposition of the Bible. 
Like if, if we're not hearing an exposition of the Bible, if what we're hearing in church is something else, something other than the exposition of the Bible, and, and you don't have to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and walk all the way through a book to get exposition, but exposition is selecting a passage of Scripture and walking through it, explaining its meaning line by line, explaining the context, and then making appropriate application. Like, that's expository. If we're getting something other than that in, in a church gathering, then we do not bear one of the most important marks of a true church, of a genuine and sincere local church. If you don't have exposition in your gathering, find another gathering. We need expository preaching and teaching and counseling and expository music and expository prayers. Without these things, a local church is not profitable. A local church is not a church. We are speaking into the air. Verse 23, therefore, if a whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Okay. What does the world currently say about the church in America? It's mad. It's full of a bunch of crazies who believe stuff that doesn't make sense. Why does the world say that? Because in large part, those who claim to be local churches or denominations or who claim to be Christian, in large part, they're speaking into the air without reason, without sense. They seem like madmen. And to the one who doesn't believe that Jesus is divine, why even be Christian if Jesus isn't divine and if we can make a valid argument for that? It makes no sense to be a Christian if our leader isn't God. If he actually has no power, it makes no sense to follow a king who isn't currently reigning. These are things we ought to think about It makes no sense to serve a quote-unquote God if He's going to put us in charge. It renders His whole position useless, right? We have to think about these things. If God is real, and if He's not a deistic sort of God, that means He is sovereign in everything that entails. And it requires a lot of thought to work through that. Every, everyone who becomes a Calvinist is once not a Calvinist. Did you know that? In theology and in thought, Reformed theology is not something anybody is immediately converted to. Why? Because it goes against our sensibilities as selfish children. Right? I like a world where I get to make free decisions and follow through perfectly with those decisions without any hindrance whatsoever. And I like a world where by my will and my muster, I can come to follow God in my own righteousness. I I like that because I can exalt myself in that. 
and, and I can be seen because of my good works and because of my words that, that sound profound. And I can build something and I can put my name on it. But that's not the reality. And that's why the world thinks we're mad because we make one claim God is real, Jesus is Lord, and then everything about our churches speaks to the adverse. Disagrees with the claims we make with our mouths. Verse 24, but if all prophesy, okay, what would it look like if all people in the church prophesied? First of all, well, it would mean on the front end, we're all learning the scriptures. And on the back end, we're teaching and reasoning concerning the scriptures. Which is what the synagogue was. Why Paul went to the synagogue every time he went to a new city to share the gospel. He went to the synagogue first and he reasoned with them there. And then he went to the marketplace and reasoned in the marketplace. He went to the place of the philosophers and he reasoned with the philosophers. He went from door to door and reasoned with people who would invite him in. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. His thoughts are challenged. His beliefs are challenged. Usually when people's thoughts and beliefs are challenged, they don't say, oh, yeah, that's profound. Let me plug into that church. No, usually when, when people's thoughts and ideas and beliefs are challenged, they react against what is being taught or said. And Scripture is just honest here. If all prophesied an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and called to account. Like it's, like, it's like the sign that you are hearing the word exposited and that you are hearing a real prophet, that the sign of that is that you, in your personal life and in your thinking, you are called to account. That doesn't sound fun. But that's what the Word of God does, and that's what happens when we are all reasoning together, right? The secrets of his heart are disclosed. I don't want that. Come to Douglas Reformed Church. We will disclose the secrets of your heart. And so he, the unbeliever, the ungifted man, will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. It doesn't say he will con- magically confess faith in Christ Jesus as his Lord and Savior. It doesn't say he will believe everything you're saying. It says, in some way, because prophecy edifies, because prophecy profits, because prophecy calls all to account, the exposition of Scripture calls everyone to account for their thoughts and their beliefs. He will fall on his face and worship God. Doesn't necessarily mean he's saved. He may remain in a state of unbelief, but he will worship God and he will declare, God must be among you. And this does not happen by some weird mystic 
religious thing like speaking in tongues that makes people madmen. Instead, it happens by the reasoning nature of prophecy when everyone in the church is prophesying to one another. Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? Oh, wait. Paul is encouraging the church to think ahead, not to just do things on a whim, to plan, to think about the outcome, to count the costs, and to see what possible victory there may be. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, when you gather Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. By the way, all that goes back to the gift of prophecy, right? Let all things be done for edification. Paul doesn't answer his question. He leaves it to their imaginations like he actually wants them to think through this. So I want to think through the question. What is the outcome when we are all prophesying together and edifying one another? instead of being so concerned about the mystic gifts or exalting ourselves, what is the outcome? And I think the outcome is sanctification. I think it's growing from spiritual and mental infancy into adulthood in Christ. I think that's the outcome. We don't have that apart from the gathering of believers. We, we can't. In fact, every reason we could think of to not be a part of the gathering of believers is self-exaltation in itself, right? What is the outcome then? Well, if we are growing more mature, Paul is saying that maturity leads to unity, so the outcome is unity. I think the outcome is peace and joy and the optimism of the faith. I think the outcome is husbands become better husbands and wives become better wives and children become better children and parents become better parents. And and when we are are working, when we are involved in our daily lives and our hobbies, I, I think we care more about those things. I think when it submits to God in in Christ the government becomes more effective and fulfills its duty under Christ. I I think people are edified. I think people are edified. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. Paul here starts to give specific instruction for the use of the gift of tongues. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or or at most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. There, there, there is no chaotic practice of the gift of tongues, where everyone is speaking tongues at the same time in the local church. That is self-exalting. But if someone is speaking a tongue, is doing it in turn, and someone is interpreting so that the saints are edified. And this clues us into like the, the liturgy of the church organization of the church. God is a God of order, not of chaos. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Then Paul gives specific instruction for the gift of prophecy. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So we see the prophets also take turns. They are not speaking at the same time. 
Two or three prophets may speak in one sitting, going back to Paul's idea of church liturgy, order, even within the congregation and the gathering of believers, plans being made so that there is no chaos. Let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. Now, wait. Pass judgment? I thought we weren't supposed to judge. I thought we weren't supposed to be like that. I thought we weren't supposed to listen to sermons and pick it apart and really, you know, think about the logistics behind what is being said. I thought we were just supposed to sit there and like take it and be encouraged or whatever. That's not what scripture says. The two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment here to mean discern what's being said because people are imperfect. Is this an exposition of Scripture or is this something else? Like, like listeners, those sitting in the, the audience, the congregation who's listening to the prophet speak, they are to, to listen actively and to judge what is being said. And not judge according to their own precepts, uh, according to to what they like or don't like. They are to judge it up against the word of God. Let others pass judgment. Think about what's being said. Let it challenge you. And if you must change in response to the word of God, change. And if something is being spoken that is incorrect, pass judgment. Discern that. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Here, Paul cluing us in again to his liturgy. Like, everyone who receives a revelation from God is to have a chance to say what they need to say. And this revelation from God isn't going to exceed the text of Scripture. Paul has already made that very plain, right? Very clear. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. It doesn't mean like you can raise your hand and cut off whoever's speaking at that moment. Like, oh, got a revelation. You got to sit down, sir. No. But when someone is done speaking the revelation they have received from God, someone else is to have the opportunity, whether that's here, in this room, or whether we say it when we go to fellowship. Whoever it is, like, is to have the opportunity to say the revelation that is made to him or her not to exceed the text of Scripture. And the first one, the one who was preaching, teaching, he must listen too. Keep silent while the other person is prophesying. For you can all prophesy. Paul talking to the believers at Corinth. Now, this verse is going to be interesting too when we get to verse 34 and he says women are to keep silent. But whatever. For you can all prophesy one 
by one. In turn, not all at the same time, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Even the, even the senior pastor? Yep. If there is such a thing as a senior pastor or a lead pastor, there's not. And this is why there is no such thing really as a lead pastor or senior pastor. This verse right here. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted, including the one who has the primary teaching responsibilities. Maybe he is called a teaching elder, right? He needs to be exhorted too. That was one of our greatest conversations in seminary. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Right? And this is one of the big questions when it came to ecclesiology we had to deal with. How does the pastor get fed? Well, because in virtually every Southern Baptist church, you have one lead pastor or senior pastor. And it's his responsibility to feed all the sheep. His responsibility alone. And he is the tip of the spear. He is the leader and face of the church. Right? Until you have a business meeting anyway. Whatever. So the big question in seminary was, how does the pastor get fed? Oh, we have this great idea. You ready for this? Let's have local associations. Where pastors can go. And the director of missions can feed them spiritually. He can be a pastor to the pastors. Yes? Well, if he's a pastor to the pastors, who's feeding him? Well, okay, we'll have the Southern Baptist Convention overall, and we'll produce all of these resources, and we'll have meetings for all of our directors of missions where they get poured into spiritually. Well, who's leading that meeting? How does he get fed spiritually? Well, we'll have presidents and seminary professors and, and whatever. Well, you get to the president, and he's a Southern Baptist pope now, and there's no one above him feeding him. And the buck really does stop there. When the Southern Baptist Convention became the new Catholicism, how'd that happen? Well, no, it's not really the new Catholicism. But the polity is set up almost as such. And I understand it's a convention, not a denomination, and that there's hardly any accountability unless the owning of property is involved, right? But there is a sort of spiritual hierarchy there where some individuals are exalted among others, but that's not the church Paul envisions here. It's not anything close, is it? Everyone is given something to say. And when one person is prophesying, even those who are seen as the spiritual leadership of the church are in submission to them, which is why Paul says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. He's not making some weird claim about ghosts here, the prophet of, prophets of old. He is saying that in your spirit... When someone else is exercising the gift of prophecy, your spirit compels you 
to subject yourself to that teaching. We can only explain that by the filling of the Holy Spirit in us, by the changing of our spirits in line with that of Christ Jesus. Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. This passage does not address polity, does not address the roles of elders or deacons. This pericope doesn't tell us the differences between uh, a preacher-teacher and a small group leader and a counselor and a worship leader and a prayer warrior. This passage doesn't give us that. This passage is a lot more basic. It puts every individual in the church on equal ground before God with the same capacity to practice the spiritual gift of prophecy for the edification of the church. And this passage also gives each person with the gift of prophecy and a revelation from God not to exceed Scripture the opportunity to speak in the context of the gathering. Which means liturgically, like if the church is to present God in the way that it does things, in the order of service, in the way that the music is played, in the way that the prayers are brought forth, public prayers are brought forth, in the way that Scripture is read, in the way that we preach and teach, in the way that we do everything, there is to be order rather than chaos. Scripture never gives a specific liturgy for every church to follow. And I think that's on purpose. But in our liturgy, we must make certain accommodations according to the Word of God. And one of those accommodations is Does everyone get a chance to speak for the purpose of edifying the church? We must make that allowance. Even someone who is speaking in tongues, if they have an interpreter, is to have an opportunity to do that in the context of the gathering, somehow, some way. And these are issues that the church must think through because no one person is more important than another and no one person is worth more than another especially within the context of the gathering and our practice of the spiritual gifts. My application this morning is not so much a challenge, but a prayer. So pray with me. Lord, Lord, cause us in our Spirits and with our minds to care. Care more about others. Care more about edifying others. Lord, help us divorce ourselves from this very American mentality that anyone is more important than anyone else. Lord, we ask that you bring people here who desire to edify one another 
in the context of Christian community because that that is what we profit from spiritually and mentally, intellectually. I pray that we are challenged every week and that we are not afraid for information to go over our heads or contradict what we already think because if we always only hear what we agree with, we never grow. Help us to judge what is being said when it is spoken. Help us to judge it rightly by the illumination of your Holy Spirit and, and by driving us, compelling us to know your word more to know you more, to know more about you. God, we love you and thank you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray.